difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps and Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky has opted out of our scary movie pairing, not realizing that what happens off screen is always scarier than what happens on screen. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Nicholas Rogue's 1973 shocker, Don't Look Now, about grieving parents who head to Venice to get over the loss of a child, but discover that fresh horrors await them. Its themes of grief, guilt, and extrasensory perception carry over to Ari Aster's debut feature, Hereditary, which also mirrors its stories about parents dealing with loss. There are times on the next picture show where we're finding connections between a new film and an older one that may not have directly influenced it, but that's not the case with Don't Look Now and Hereditary. Clearly, Aster was taking notes. Hereditary starts with the death of a family's cruel, secretive matriarch, who casts such a dark shadow that her daughter, Annie Graham, played by Tony Collette, can scarcely find a kind word to say about her in her eulogy. As the title suggests, however, the Graham family inherits some serious spookiness. While her husband Steve, played by Gabriel Byrne, tries to be stoic, Annie gradually starts to lose her mind, especially after a gruesome accident claims her 13-year-old daughter Charlie and leaves her teenage son Peter racked with guilt. She starts attending support group meetings in secret and finds a friend in Joan, played by Anne Dowd, who convinces her that she could communicate with Charlie via seance. As she opens up this passage to the beyond, however, a range of other problems engulf the Grams, and Annie believes she's the only one who can put a stop to them. On today's episode, we'll add more talk to the most talked about horror film of the year. Then we'll bring in Don't Look Now and draw the many connections between these two sophisticated supernatural shockers. Please join us after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's Grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's going to take care of me? You don't think I'm going to take care of you? But when you die... She wasn't altogether there. At the end. 
just don't want to put any more stress on my family. Uh, so, Hereditary. Tasha, you saw this first, right? Because you went to Sundance, like fancy person? I, I saw it the first of anybody. They, they just took me into a room with it, and they were like, <laughs> this movie isn't even done. Yeah, it was... Uh, I don't think it was the premiere, because there was already buzz about it, but I, I saw it while it was playing at Sundance. Um, in fact, I know it wasn't the premiere, because uh, anticipation in the room was so high that you could mm-hmm. feel it. There was just that sense... It is so different to see a horror film in a packed theater of people who are at a film festival. So for the most part, they don't have their phones out, but nobody knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the tension was so good. The film wigged me out pretty seriously. We had already yeah. kind of had the scariest film ever buzz. So I was pretty skeptical about that. And I definitely know that some people took it a lot harder than I did. There are <laughs> there are a couple of shocks in this film that are just really, really out there. Mm-hmm. But... But above everything, so Charlie, the very unsettlingly strange kid, makes this little noise with her tongue yep. from time to time. And it's used for shock at various points. There is a moment in the film where you just hear that sound effect and the woman behind me screamed. <laughs> I mean, like full on Beatles at Shea Stadium screamed. <laughs> and this was a woman I'd been talking to before the film. And like she was like a smart, engaged film person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she wasn't she wasn't drunk and she wasn't unused to horror. But like that is my memory of the film. It breaks it's, you down. Well, it, it builds you up. It builds you, builds up, you up to this point of tension. Yeah. I think this movie hands, handles tension really, really well. Yeah, Keith, what do you think? Yeah, uh, no, I, th- I was completely gripped by it. I mean, I think we'll probably get into some pros and cons of the, where the narrative goes later on. But uh, Charlie's death scene. I've never been in a movie theater where I basically collectively felt the entire theater hold its breath and just wait to yeah. exhale for probably 15 seconds. I mean, I I couldn't believe what we just saw. And then the way it draws it out way it draws out Peter going back home and like not doing anything. The music by Colin Stetson, which is, a you know, well, let's, let's get this in early. The music is very good. Uh, in this film, the craftsmanship here is stunning. And that, that moment is so shocking. And it's not the only shocking moment in this movie, but it just really unsettles you. Unsettling is the right word. I think just from, from that first shot, that amazing first shot of, of the, uh, what looks to be a miniature that is revealed to be the, the house uh, where, where the film is set. Yeah, that's a very tricky shot. And it's such a 70s shot. Yeah, I, I saw the film uh, pretty recently for the show. And it just freaked me the hell out. I was I had uh, almost like a fight or flight <laughs> response to it. <laughs> that's like I, I mean, I never really would actually leave the theater. But I mean, there was part of me that I felt like was departing while I was watching I've had it. that in horror movies, too, where it's like, you know what? I don't have to be here. <laughs> I could. This might, like, I am this like, could I, be too scary. Not, do, not with this I one. Do though, not feel, I do not feel good. I mean, and there were, there I, I will admit, sections of the film that I, I actually like let my eyes go out of focus. I was like so wigged out. And I think it, it you know, we'll talk about the connections don't look now later, but just it has to do with not just, you know, the atmosphere or the quality of the filmmaking, which is very, very strong th- throughout. It has to do with the stakes of the film and the emotions of the movie and the way that feeds into the ambiance of it and, and makes you you know, feel something more than just the standard creak in the floor effects. I mean, there's something primal about the emotions in Hereditary that are just, they're hugely unnerving. And, you know, I mean, the film is flawed, particularly, I think, in the closing stretch. I ha- we ha- had some issues, I guess we can get into those. But overall, I was pretty wild by it. 
Yeah, I want to, I think, by way of talking a little bit about those flaws. So at The Verge, we had an interview with uh, Colin Stetson, the composer, and I wanted to read something here. He's talking about how basically the only direction he was given was make it feel evil. And <laughs> he he figured that there are all of these things that horror movie scores do that people have learned to tune out if they watch a lot of horror. So if you hear like, you know, creepy strings or like slow synths, he thinks that those are things that you can tune out. So he tried to use like unusual instrumentation or noises and bring them in. So you were perpetually kind of like, what is that? Like that sense that you get of like, you're hearing a noise in the house and you don't know what it is and you snap awake as opposed to the creaking of the floor that you hear all the time. So he says, when you listen to the score, something that sounds like strings likely is not. It's probably clarinets or my voice. Something that sounds like synths is probably a contrabass clarinet or some number of them. Something that sounds like a swarm of bats, that's probably strings. Using sound sources to accomplish different ends was the first goal. And I feel like in a way, he was trying to make this score as though he was not a conventional composer, you know, as though he was not using conventional instruments. And I feel like that's what Ari Aster does as well. I feel like a lot of both the flaws and the strengths of this movie are because he's imitating things that he's seen. He's drawing on unconventional sources. He's going to places that a more practiced filmmaker might not go. And in some ways, he's just kind of putting it together out of a whole bunch of different images that he's got going on in his mind that are kind of unconventional. So I think there's upsides and downsides to that. But I think it does, at the very least, give us something that we're not used to seeing. Yeah, it's kind of unwieldy. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is 127 minutes long, which is quite long. I think you feel it. It's jagged. It's a messy film. I think it's got a lead performance by Tony Collette that is excellent, but polarizing in just the terms of how amplified the performance is and how much emotion she's given you. I mean, this is a lot of movie to process in so many different ways. You're faced with a feeling of intense unease, near sickening unease for so long. It's exhausting, the movie, in a good way, I think, but in a difficult way, too, to sit through this film. I, I There's part of me that wishes it were tighter and more precise in the way that it expresses itself, but there's also, I do kind of like that it's got a messiness to it and unpredictability and a bigness and uh, a sprawling aspect that kind of makes it special too so i don't i wouldn't want to give that up necessarily yeah my issue i have with a film is one i kind of intellectually talk myself into not having but still kind of find unsatisfying which is i think when the focus shifts from annie played by tony collette to her son peter played by alex wolf it very much is a payoff of what's set up right there by the title which is this curse or mental illness or whatever you want it to be a stand in for, uh, for what's going on. This film is passed from one generation, uh, lands from grandmother to mother to son. But at the same time, we spent all this time with Tony Collette's character just to kind of abandon her in favor of her son is feels a little off to me. And it's not a film interested in giving you a neat resolution to any of this, but it also feels like you kind of chopped off one of the main threads. 
I agree with you. I mean, I think that for me, the primary problem with this film is that it's too many films. Like it feels like it's a haunted house film and it's a like it's a bad blood film. It's a, you know, family is a curse uh, film, but it's also a possession film. It's also sort of a home invasion film. It's also sort of a satanic panic film. And if it brought in all of these elements a little more selectively and kind of found the common threads, possibly by focusing more more tightly on Tony Collette's character, uh, I think it would be something really special. And as it is, it just feels like a few too many movies kind of like he he has all of his influences and he loves them all. And these are influences we love, too, and can recognize and, and say, oh, that's that's a good poll. <laughs> but there are a few too many of them. I kind of like the don't look now aspects of this movie more than the Rosemary's Baby aspects of this movie. Because that's kind of where you wind up in the end. You just have this sudden just rush of satanic or is it satanic nonsense that you get in movies like like that. And your focus leaves you know the kind of the core emotions of the, of the movie and you just have to deal with a lot of really gory ritual. You speak so lightly of Paimon, Scott. <laughs> I shouldn't speak lightly of Paimon. I mean, that just, it feels like a very Ken Russell touch. And uh, like, I don't know. To go that far. Well, the specifically kind of the way it's staged and the, like all of the naked bodies. It's like naked bodies are, are shocking, but like the naked bodies of people you don't know anything about who just kind of appeared out of nowhere just has this very... It's the Wicker Man, too. It is very The Wicker Man. I was, I was going to bring that up. It's, it's almost like a reverse Wicker Man because it's, it's somebody being elevated to high status and then not exactly burned at the stake, although she's already kind of been destroyed, so... Yeah. Depends on how you take it. I, I get what you're saying, Keith, about this shift from Annie to her son, Peter. But I really wouldn't want to lose any of those scenes with Peter. His deterioration over the course of the film is so riveting. Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, he's so, it's so unsettling from the start that he has to be saddled with his sister, who's really, really... Uh, disturbing. A, a disturbing kid. And then he is... In a way that Donald Sutherland isn't in Don't Look Now, he is wholly responsible for what happens to... I mean, he blames his mom for forcing him to take her to that party, but his neglect both at the party and trying to drive her home uh, yields that gruesome result, so he has to live with that. And then the hauntings that follow, and you know that scene with him in the classroom kind of smashing his head against the desk, I mean, oof. That's tough. Poor Peter. There's also those like weird little light rings. I mean, that's it's used to really good effect with him and in the school, but that's just yet another of yeah, like, a another billion element. elements. Yeah, that's a Suspiria thing, right? Yeah, I, that feels that way, yeah. Yeah, because there's little like reflections of light that mm-hmm. kind of that play into Jessica uh, Harper's eyes in certain points of that movie and just in kind of disorient her all the more. Too many things there, yes. There's a lot. Pick one. There's a lot. There's a lot. And by the- pick one, I mean like pick ten. So we could have really we could have paired this with any number of films. We've mentioned some of them already. Uh, Suspiria would be a pretty small aspect, but certainly Rosemary's Baby is pretty huge. And we already did Suspiria when we, we did paired Suspiria. It with we, we, did Wick, we did Wicker Man. We yep. got some good suggestions on Twitter too. Someone mentioned um, In the Bedroom, which is another film about uh, about loss, uh, you know, loss of a child, and how uh, how it affects the family. And yeah, and that's a very different kind of film it is um, but it would be an ways, interesting comparison yeah, I, I can see it see it working it's um it's one of scott's favorites too i do like it yeah and just having a parent who's not just grieving but also actively trying to fix a situation and trying to fix it making it so so much worse um but you know what really 
intrigued me about the film. I mean, we'll, and we'll get into connections soon. But uh, I mean, you, you talk about themes of guilt and grief, but the theme suggested by the title is so interesting to me because I, I started to think about it in terms of its connection with First Reformed and how both of these movies are about what is being passed along. What world are we leaving for the younger generations? What are they inheriting? It's such a disaster. I mean, First Reformed makes it explicit in terms of the environmental inheritance, but hereditary, you know, I mean, you could see that as a metaphor too of just this terrible curse that's being passed along that the children cannot find their way out of, right? Yeah, and I think in the end, that is a little bit of my biggest problem with the film is a sense that we just don't know enough about about the grandmother or about the curse. I think the way the movie starts, like that beginning speech with Toni Collette, where she is trying to find something to say about her mother and like almost inadvertently revealing some really disturbing things about her, like mm-hmm. her insistence on breastfeeding Charlie, which we later see in <sighs> miniature, and it's even more uh... horrific than you imagined. I think that that's a really interesting way to to begin that story. But at the same time, I kind of felt her as a not enough of a presence in the film to kind of be the big bad at the end. There are so many different threads here that from time to time, especially after Charlie's death, it really feels like, you know, the threat is Charlie herself in some way, you know, that she's this unquiet spirit that's maybe possessing Peter or maybe coming back for revenge, or maybe like in a very, a way that reminded me of poltergeist, maybe just like disturbing and unnerving her mother. I, it just, I, I feel like as much as we lose track of uh, Tony Collette by the end, I also feel like we lose track of the grandmother as a threat to the point where when she kind of comes back at the end, it's like, oh, right. Yeah, that. <laughs> but, no, but she's there. She's there, though, the, with Andow, though. I mean, that's where she comes back, right? When we find, Andow is so good. When we, get, when we get kind of more information about what Andow's character is doing and, and her relationship with the deceased then that um, death that starts the film, you know, starts to come back into play, right? Sure. But again, there's like a large segment of the middle of the film where it's unclear what she's doing and what she represents and where the grandmother is not present in the story, is not present as a threat, is not present in their awareness. Tony Collette is distracted by something that seems a lot more vivid and real and terrible because we got to know Charlie um, and we know what that loss means to her. Although <laughs> something else that this movie made me think of a fair bit was we need to talk about Kevin because uh. Charlie is so weird and disturbing and clearly in need of help. And it's like nobody, nobody but the audience sees it. And the, the audience is perpetually going, oh, my God, she just cut off a bird's head to make art. Somebody do something. Yeah. And, you know, Tony Collette certainly does not see that. It's her daughter. She loves her. But there, and there's also that same sense of maternal ambivalence, too, in this, too. I mean, does she really want to be a mother? I don't know that that would come across so much if not for that the crazy speech about dumping paint thinner all over her kids in her sleep. Oh, my gosh. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's so much. There's there's a lot going on. Genevieve was behind the boards going, what the hell are you people talking about? There, this you got to see this movie, Genevieve. It is it is a lot of movie. I really, I really, for, I don't think it would be healthy for Genevieve to see this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, we've, we've established in the past that what gets Genevieve is not uh, jump scares so much as lurking dread. And this movie, this is lurking dread, the movie. <laughs> yeah. 
Which um, is something that it has very strongly in common with uh, a film I like to call Don't Look Now. Yeah, well, that's a good place to end. Uh, and we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Don't Look Now and Hereditary. You okay, Mom? What? Is there something on your mind? Is there something on your mind? It just seems like there might be something you want to say. Yeah. Like what? I mean, why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? Sneer at you? I don't ever sneer at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine, then say what you want to say then. Peter. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, things. so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine, release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together, talk about all the things they have in common. Let's start with the obvious, which is uh, parental grief which also comes with different side effects like guilt and denial and all that other business. And of well, course, yeah, the, that, that of course there's the marriage in the film too. So there's a lot to talk about, unpack in those things. Let's, let's get into it. I'll just make a joke. I was going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that is in both these movies, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, the dynamic. Let's not lose our heads. Oh, huh? oh, you went there. Let's not you lose our heads. I'm not sure that a dad joke is the most appropriate thing to bring to a, a conversation about oh. dads and how they deal with horrible, horrible trauma. Oh, wait. <laughs> so, I mean, it's the exact same dynamic between them. You know, the, the man in the relationship seems to feel a responsibility to be very serious about the whole thing. You mm-hmm. know, we are going to deal with it in this one acceptable way. And then the woman is uh, buying in to what would look to any normal person like hokey mumbo jumbo and a psychic who's taking advantage of her but in this case is actually a real thing i mean it's it's an homage if you're being friendly about it it's ripped off if you're not feeling friendly about it but either way it's such an interesting dynamic because as an audience member you can sympathize with both of them you can see why the woman in both cases isn't necessarily just, you know, falling for a, a stupid act, you know, falling for somebody who's like, oh, I, I sense something, maybe unhappiness, maybe somebody whose name begins with a letter, like somebody with, with real specific information has come to her and given her something that's helpful to her. And you can sympathize with that. But you can also sympathize with the guy who's like, we're not doing this. Like we have to live in the real world. It's, yeah. it's a really tense and unpleasant dynamic that you can be on both sides of at once. Yeah. I mean, you wonder how things would go if Steve, uh, the character played by Gabriel Byrne ended up having his way <laughs> with the family still face the same fader. Is it sealed by how much Annie needs in order to get through this terrible situation i feel like it's another film where you can see where choices go awry but it is also a film about fate being a sealed circle i mean there's no escaping this inheritance uh, yeah. and then tony collette is, is you know the character is super talented and smart and at odds with her mother in every way possible and yet there's no getting away from it it's it's I think in some ways that's as disturbing as any other element in the movie. It is convincing uh, that, you know, what, what's handed to us by our parents is ours to carry for the rest of our lives and probably our kids to carry too. 
I think an interesting aspect of that is that's not true in Don't Look Now. Like he's given a very specific warning. You're in danger as long as you're in Venice. Mm -hmm. You should leave Venice. And we've even got the, you know, the narrative convenience of I'm going to leave. I'm going to take three weeks off. We're not going to be here. But first, but you know, and then, then he doesn't leave. It could have all been avoided. You know, his daughter's death couldn't have been avoided, but his could have. In Hereditary, I don't see a way out. I mean, obviously, they could have. A lot of choices could have been made differently. But once you've gotten Gabriel Byrne's character to the point where he's actually making choices, it's kind of already too late mm-hmm. on a lot of different levels. I mean, she could have potentially dismissed what Ann Dowd is telling her is luring her with but it's an opportunity that is completely something she would take up i mean it's something it's a trap that is laid for her so well because there's a amount of camaraderie and trust that builds up between them to get them to the point where like we identify with each other we have the same problem and this is the solution that i have for this problem this seance i can now communicate with the deceased and it feels great and i can be reassured by that and then of course that doesn't go terribly well for Annie and the rest of the Graham family. There is a way in these two movies that they kind of flip-flop the parallels between them. We spend a lot of time in Don't Look Now with John and his work on the church, which he's kind of immersed himself in. Um, And it's not overtly stated, but it seems fairly clear that this is part of his escape, is focusing so much on the details. We don't get that with Gabriel Byrne. Like, work is obviously a huge distraction for him, but the film doesn't care about the details. That all goes into Annie and her miniatures, her Mm -hmm. art, the deadline that she's pushing, her emotional problems with the, the museum deadline that's coming up on her. So we kind of get a way in which the two of their characters are much more parallel than she is with Julia Christie character or he is with Gabriel Byrne's character. And what are we to read into this obsession of hers, these miniatures she's creating? Is it, a, is it a way of controlling an environment that she can't control otherwise? I mean, she is fully in charge of every single detail in creating these miniatures that are often reflective of her own domestic situation. Perhaps that is a reaction against her own life, which feels a little bit out of control even before the movie starts, right? I think it's an artist's attempt to contain the world in some ways, but it's not like she's trying to shut out the traumatic things that have gone on in her life. There they find themselves in the work, but it is a tightly controlled, the amount of discipline and painstaking effort it takes to make those miniatures. I mean, it's, it's also kind of mirrors the style of filmmaking uh, on display in the movie too, which is very thought through, very meticulously planned, but at the same time, you know, telling the story about, how chaos slips into the world no matter what we do. Why am I only just remembering that she creates a miniature of the accident scene? Yeah. Yeah. So and, that's and, a whole and of the paint thing. thinner scene, if I remember correctly as well, right? Well, the what? Uh, the paint thinner moment as well is also depicted in there, if, if I'm not mistaken. In the miniature part? Yeah. I, uh. And again, the scene of her mother breastfeeding Charlie, which yeah. is deeply fundamentally disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, these traumas get passed down to generations, but also find them ways out and into the, into the world in other ways as well. We also, uh, over at The Verge, this is apparently Verge Plug Week, I learned so much about this film from these interviews. Um, we did an interview with Steve Newburn, who's the like the model designer. He did the makeup effects, so he did 
you know, things like Charlie's head, uh, which he says there was actually a much, much more graphic and disturbing version of that whole sequence. And they just <laughs> apparently decided to cut it. I know, right? How, how do some of these people sleep at night? I mean, he spent all day crafting the head, you know, covered in ants or whatever. But <laughs> he, also, he also made the miniatures. Yeah. So he also, you know, spent days upon days upon days oh, gluing boy. like teeny tiny little window bars onto windows These people are made of sterner stuff than i am well it's it's a really interesting interview among other things uh he talks about the challenge of being told to recreate all of the rooms in the house in miniature while the rooms in the house hadn't been designed yet uh and kind of the up to the last minute problems with basically trying to do all of that stuff like on a super tight deadline but I, I just I think it works so well because it's kind of it's just a constant source of visual fascination, like looking at the details of these things and just exploring what it must do to your mind to be trying to do something this meticulous and detail oriented and how much it would help you shut out the world. Although I, I also I get the same sort of feeling that in the sequence in Don't Look Now, where they're trying to get the gargoyle up on the wall, uh, and it keeps almost falling, uh-huh. and you're a little obsessed with like, is he going to fall and die? Is the gargoyle going to fall and shatter? I keep getting distracted by just how hideous that gargoyle is, and his face is right up against it. It's almost they almost kiss in that one one moment too, it which really is which flashes like back. Uh, which we get another flash of in the death scene as well. It's, mm. it's a really striking image. And again, it kind of, it just makes you think about like, what, what must this do to your mind? You know what? You know what? How do we sleep? I don't know, we watch <laughs> these movies. <laughs> we, we get these things seeping into our head as well. Uh, I don't know how I, I, I watched do the, you the sleep late still? show of hereditary. Yeah. And it was, uh, it definitely, uh, was a weird movie to fall asleep to right after seeing it. Scott sleeps during these movies. Didn't you hear his uh, don't look now story? <laughs> well, don't look now. Yeah. That was, uh, like I said, I think that's not the worst way of seeing Don't Look Now in terms of its effect on you. But another thing they have in common, one connection is shock tactics. I'm thinking specifically, you know, of course, the end of the Don't Look Now and the beginning, which have these visual motifs, particularly with the color red, that feed into our perception of of the scene to make it more intense. And the one comparable element I can think of in Hereditary is that clucking sound that charlie makes uh, it's this right is that a pretty mm-hmm. good one because you know we of course hear her doing that absentmindedly while she's alive and then it comes when it comes back later you get someone behind you screaming mm-hmm. it was uh, the car scene specifically okay yeah there's a there's just a scream in the theater because uh because you know she's gone and yet this thing continues and so it's this haunting element that carries over from life through to death and kind of hangs with us throughout the movie. I mean, there's not quite as much of a stylistic rigor or adventurousness in Hereditary as there is in Don't Look Now, but it does find ways to get under your skin, does it not? Well, above all, I mean, the biggest shock moment in Don't Look Now comes when we see the face of the the dwarf at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's only in the credit as dwarf. I don't know what else you could call her, but the, the like the little woman at the end when she turns and you have that moment of it, this is not a ghost. This is not a girl. This mm-hmm. is, you know, this is a murderer. The equivalent of that is seeing Charlie's face after the decapitation. And it's so shocking because the movie has spent more than five minutes at this point dancing around it. Like it's something that you know that it happened. 
you <laughs> you know what it must have felt like to to Peter. You know that eventually it's going to be discovered, and it's this build up and build up and build up. But you probably don't expect to actually see it because you didn't see it in the moment. And then when it's suddenly on screen, I mean, I, I again, I was in a theater packed with people, and you could feel the dread and the revulsion. It was uh, just one of those moments where everybody's air went out of their yeah. lungs at the same time. Thump. <laughs> it's like that blunt sound thump. It actually, just as a side note, I think I think this the film is so perceptive about the way a, a kid like Peter would react in that situation of both a sense of just being in absolute shock over what has happened, but also being a teenager and not really wanting to take responsibility for what what had happened, to be able to, to have this happen and not go home screaming about uh, about what happened, but to actually go to bed. I mean, that, that felt very real to me and very specific to a kid of his age. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever had a dream where you've done something horrible, especially I used to have these all the time with just the sense, not that like I didn't play out doing something horrible in the dream, but I would remember having done something horrible. Yeah. And then you wake up and there's that moment of, oh, it wasn't real. Like it, yeah. it didn't happen. I feel so strongly that when he, he goes to bed, he is hoping that he will wake up in the morning and it'll all turn out to be a bad dream. Yeah, when you wake up and you're like, oh, I did put a lettuce in a burrito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually... The nightmare is real. I do that quite a bit. Mm, that was a good lettuce burrito that I had. Uh, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to get up and do that again. What a great way to start the day with a, with thoughts of a delicious lettuce burrito down the line. <laughs> um, so what else about this movie? What, what, about, what, what other connections can we make between don't look now and hereditary i mean we got into a little bit the psychics i mean that's a really strong connection between and doubt and the the two women and their communing with the dead and in the specific nature of that communication too about the person on the other end the child being totally fine and happy and it being a very positive experience uh for the mother to have had right yeah i guess what baffles me about the kind of the psychic connection in these films is so much of it in hereditary feels borrowed from don't look now but the element that we don't really get is in don't look now is it's heavily implied at one point it's even stated that John is himself psychic and that he's oh, yeah. in denial about it. He, we have the moment where he realizes his daughter has just drowned and he leaps up. Mm-hmm. But there's also intimations towards the end that he had seen all of this coming and just didn't know how to interpret it because he was denying the ability existed. I don't see so much of a parallel of that in Hereditary. No, 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 definitely not that part of it, no. But I also don't quite know what to make of it in Don't Look Now. Like, is this a movie about somebody who who isn't listening to his inner voice, who's shutting down some integral part of himself? Is it just about fate or is it about having a a more spiritual connection to the world. What does it mean in Don't Look Now that we spend so much time on him being psychic and not not acknowledging it? I don't know. I mean, I think it's just, uh, the case of Don't Look Now, I think it's just a a movie that you could describe as a supernatural thriller, but it's imbued with a certain psychological realism. And so those, it's interesting to see those two things blend because they tend to be dealt with separately in the movies, not together. And so it creates a different 
feel. I mean, I think you get a little bit of that in Hereditary. I was going to say, would you say it's more or less true of Hereditary as well? I mean, up to a point, but all the family drama and all the sort of going through grief or loss, not once, but twice, first with the grandmother, although that's less grief than relief, Uh, and then with the daughter. I mean, it's very much, uh, and then it's support groups and and doubt kind of like being just sort of a, Infiltrating that group against, uh, I say her name as if Andal were somehow evil. She but, really, uh, she, uh, she but, consistently uh, has proven herself to be so. She, she's good. She's good at that. But, you know, the, the grief's all over this movie as well. Kind of another parallel between them is just the fact that the supernatural is undeniable. I mean, it's baked into hereditary. Like everything that happens in Hereditary is built around the idea of life after death and your spirit persisting and having supernatural powers that you can use. But in Don't Look Now, we never see the child's ghost. We never see her taking active effect in the world. We just have the word of this very strange woman to indicate that there are spirits, that they are real, that they are warning you. But the film never does anything that would lead us to doubt that either. I mean, her information is real and valid. I question those women's motives a little bit watching the movie. I, I don't know. And don't know. look now. Yeah, and don't look now. I, I don't. Maybe it's, maybe I'm just sort of colored by having seen Hereditary recently. But, you know, you do get the scene of them kind of cackling on their own. Oh, yeah. You, you do get... There definitely seems to be some sort of connection with whatever supernatural things are going on, but we only have their word that their daughter is speaking to them and saying that everything's cool. Oh, I've, yeah, I, I completely feel like they're a malevolent presence yeah, in that too. film. What do you think, Tasha? Really? No, I don't. Um, hmm. I think that we're to see them kind of through John's eyes as mm. these weird cackling old biddies. But as the film progresses, it's like we see them more and more through Laura's eyes and we keep expecting them to be malevolent. But all they do is reassure her and warn him. And at the end, when Heather is, is so disturbed that she falls into a fit because she sees John's death coming. I don't see any malice in that. I think that she really does care about him and Mm. want to protect him, even after what he put them through. Like, I think Wendy is done with him at that point. She's like, you put us through all of this. We've done nothing wrong to you. And you've put us through all of this harassment and strain. And she is absolutely ready to kick his butt out the door. And the only reason she doesn't is because she doesn't want to be not non-British about it. Like she's polite for Heather's sake, but she's very crisp and ready for him to, to be out the door. I think Heather just sees what she sees and passes it along. And you know, she's a pretty warm figure. That's it. I mean, maybe I just think of them as this wedge that, opens up between you know laura and and john and i always think of that image of her on the boat with the two of them passing by i mean this it's so but i think what you say is it makes a lot of sense i mean and i guess we don't really we don't necessarily get the level of confirmation that we get with and doubt i mean we know you know that she is on the side of evil i mean there's no question about that i think credit credit to don't look now for kind of you know, not necessarily needing to dot that particular eye. I think it's very narrow-minded to just, just because they're Satanists doesn't make <laughs> you're here to summon a, a demonic force to take over the body of this teenager. It doesn't make them evil, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, one, one thing I think it's a little more understated, but I think it's worth talking about um, hereditary use, it's use of place as well. I mean, it's filmed in Utah and it really makes great use of these wide open spaces. I, I think of the, you know, sunset over, over the, over the horizon scene where, where, uh, the evil and out, uh, and Tony Collette are meeting in the parking lot and, and what could be a fairly 
mundane um, moment is, is given this really great atmosphere by the use of, of, of the landscape and just, just the long drive, you know, the long driving between stretches of nothingness, you know, obviously pays off really big in the decapitation scene, but it's, it's there. In Which other decapitation scene? <laughs> oh, fair. But it's there in other scenes as well. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's good use of place as well. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So they, they both, you know, Utah is not Venice. Sorry, Utah. But uh, <laughs> sorry to our listeners in Utah, but you're not Venice. But you're, you're quite nice. But I think we also just need a location um, where the Graham family can live kind of apart from everyone mm-hmm. else, too. And, and uh, they find a really good one in this movie. So Don't Look Now is available uh, to rent on all the usual streaming services. It's also available on Criterion Blu-ray. Hereditary is still hanging on in theaters, but may not be around for much longer. Uh, The cinema score on it was not the highest. It was at that A24 horror (laughs) film level of like D or D+. Uh, But still really good. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Tasha, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I can't say that this is good precisely, but I think it's important. I tweeted about this, and I was honestly a little – like it it went pretty viral, but I was surprised at how few other sources I saw picking it up. There was an essay in Variety as we're taping this uh, earlier this week. The headline on it is, How Pixar's Open Sexism Ruined My Dream Job. And it was written by a woman named Cassandra Smolkik, who was an animator at Pixar for five years um, in her 20s. And she lays out in depressing detail what the environment has been like at Pixar for female creators, for female writers, directors, pretty much anybody trying to work in uh, uh, like a management field or a creative field at Pixar. Basically, the John Lasseter story, which was so kind of controlled by Disney. Like the story was that he was leaving because he had made some people uncomfortable with a few hugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the details started to leak about him actively groping people and harassing people. The, this woman, among other things, details the fact that she was cut out of the weekly art meetings on the film that she was working on because they didn't want her in the room with Lasseter because she was a young, attractive woman. And she, they outright said, Lasser cannot control himself around young women, and you're just going to be a distraction. So we're just going to sideline you. She talks in detail about basically just being taken off projects and stuck in a corner with nothing to do because the she was working in an environment where she was groped, where other women were groped and harassed and called names and leered over, but not actually allowed to do creative work and where any woman who was remotely in a leadership position was maligned behind their back as a ball cut and bitch, but men who did the exact same thing were praised and promoted. The whole thing is essentially a, a cliff notes for a much, much longer piece that she wrote for uh, one of Medium's verticals, um, which you can find under the title Pixar's Sexist Boys Club. And that version of the story is hyper detailed. Honestly, you, I think you can skip past the first like 2000 words or so oh. where she just kind of talks about herself and her background and her experience with sexual harassment and assault 
before Pixar by way of explaining why she so often froze up and retreated at Pixar. But she talks in the longer version about other people's stories, um, about kind of the women's club that formed behind the scene to commiserate about how their careers were going nowhere, about how they couldn't get any traction, about how harassment that was reported to HR was blown off, about harassment that was not reported got worse and worse and worse, and about all of these individual not microaggressions, but macroaggressions. It's very, very distressing. I've been such a huge fan and a booster of Pixar since the first days. And reading all of this, Leo, the inside story from somebody who was driven out of the industry by her experience at Pixar, and thus is not worried about reprisals and, and is able to come forward and say, here is my experience. Here are other women's specific experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the Dylan Farrow, you know, blowing the roof off of the industry uh, expose. And I feel like people owe it to themselves to read this if they love Pixar, if they want to understand where the Lassiter uh, things are coming from, if they want to understand more about the environment these movies were made in. So, And maybe something about the movies themselves, too, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. If, if nothing else, Brenda Chapman's experience on Brave, which is yet another thing that we, we got a very tightly studio-controlled version of the story about how she was driven off the movie that she wrote and was directing that was about her relationship with her daughter. You know, it was heavily touted as, this is our first woman-led production, this is going to be our first woman director, and then they forced her off and replaced her with a very nice man who really didn't have a lot of experience or vision for the movie. Mm. I mean, I interviewed him. I, I thought he was an interesting guy, but he really was like, even by his own admission, somebody was hanging out there as like a consultant in the era uh, and was not, not really there to be a, a giant creative force. And the resulting movie feels very compromised. So, yeah. Uh, You'd recommend the variety version, basically. I would recommend that people read the variety version if they want kind of a, a brief overview. But if they find themselves saying, well, that doesn't sound so bad, or but where's the proof, or where's the detail? Uh, Pixar's Sexist Boys Club, um, if you search for that, uh, you'll find an awful lot of very specific evidence. Just briefly, since that was that is a very depressing um, and very heavy, uh, I want to recommend an actual movie, which is Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace, mm. which we didn't really have the opportunity to talk about, although we, we discussed it briefly. This is the director of Winter's Bone, and it is another film like Winter's Bone about the relationship between a young woman and a, her troubled father. It's a really quiet, simple, beautiful movie. Uh, Essentially, she and her father are living in a national park off the grid. Uh, He is a veteran. He's troubled in a lot of ways. Played by Ben Foster. It's a tremendous performance. The young woman is uh, Thomason McKenzie. And it's, it's just about how they live and what their relationship is like. And then they're discovered, and it's about how their worlds change and about their adjusting needs and how they reflect the world when they're in it. And I don't want to say more about it because I don't want to give it away. But in the same way that Winter's Bone felt revelatory about Jennifer Lawrence's character being a very, very tough young woman who knew what she wanted and had the drive to get it, here we kind of see a younger version of that character who doesn't have 
have that kind of bark on her who hasn't been through that kind of scenario. But we see her kind of trying to discover herself and what she wants in relationship to a father who she loves very, very deeply, but who she's maybe not entirely on the same page at. And watching that relationship develop uh, in a very tender and, and thoughtful and loving and detailed way throughout this film it's beautifully shot. It's a visually gorgeous film, but mostly I want people to see it for the emotive value of the relationship. Yeah, so, I'm super stoked about it. I have not seen it yet, but uh, I'm, I'm ready for it. I like that story, and it's never quite been done perfectly. I think of things like The Mosquito Coast or The Glass Castle that came out not too long ago or that thing with... Uh, and Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen. So there's been a lot of versions or variations of this type of story, but uh, I'm pretty excited to see her take on it just based on Winter's Bone and, of course, all the things and all the good things I'm hearing from you and others. Uh, I am going to guess that you're going to like this movie, Scott. Uh, so Leave No Trace, uh, written and directed by Deborah Granick. Scott, yeah. what's been good for you? This has quietly become the summer of the documentary. Uh, RBG and Won't You Be My Neighbor are two of the biggest indie hits of the year. And now I wanted to recommend a third that appears to be well on its way to becoming yet another documentary hit, and it's called Three Identical Strangers. And I want to tread extremely lightly here because it's best to experience the film cold without knowing anything about the plot. In fact, if our listeners really want to go to extremes and use this opportunity to skip ahead about 30 seconds or so, now's the time. Should I stick my fingers in my ears and go la la la? You know, this is still pretty vague. I think you'll be okay. This is just the basic premise. Three Identical Strangers is about triplets who are separated at birth and reunited by accident at the age of 19. Uh, They were a huge media sensation in the 80s uh, when they first sort of discovered each other. But the story took a number of darker turns once the spotlight faded. That's all I'm going to say about the film, uh, which just hits you with one stunning revelation after another. It's a very strange thing to have to talk about real life in terms of spoilers, but really that's how the film has been designed, to completely to hit you with one twist after another. And beneath all of this madness, it's a fascinating real-life study in nature versus nurture and the forces that ultimately dictate where the lives of these men end up going. You're going to have a good time watching this film. It is absolutely fascinating. It's put together, cut on a, on a, on a dime. It's, if anything, it's a little too slick, but I really enjoyed it and thought about it a lot. And um, seeing it with an audience, that true, false, a full audience, I mean, it really gets a reaction at something else. Three Identical Strangers. I think it made a, it just made a fortune. This we, We're talking... We're doing recording this podcast after its opening weekend and limited release, and it did uh, incredible box office. So uh, I think people are ready for it. Yeah, three digital strangers. Keith, I've got a uh, two uh, sort of a, a double pronged recommendation related to each other. One which I can recommend unabashedly is, is David Scott's uh, Robin, which is a biography, a very extensive, uh, heavily researched, um, and lovingly written uh, biography of, of Robin Williams that that is has a lot of respect for him. And his life and his craft, but doesn't read, you know, it's, it's definitely, and it doesn't delve into dirt, but it also does offers a very complete picture of Robin Williams and, um, and so quite, quite moving by the end as well. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, life and, uh, and, and a fascinating read. He, he talked to a lot of people, um, from, you know, extensive interviews with, with everyone from Billy Crystal to Robin Williams' son, Zach Williams. And, uh, and and so and it kind of walks through his his life from as a as a fairly uh, lonely kid in Michigan and and then San Francisco and and up through um, fame and up through the, the later years when when um, 
uh, when health and, and career troubles uh, kind of combined to, to lead to uh, quite a bit of unhappiness. It's the model of a good biography where it's, it's a compelling narrative and it's filled with facts and, and may, kind of maybe look at, at Williams in a new light. And, and if Williams is a, is a performer who I have a, a lot of affection for and has done movies I really love but also can find extremely irritating. Um, and I think everyone, you know, a lot of people have that kind of love-hate relationship with Robin Williams. And, uh, you know, it's sort of supplementary viewing. Uh, I'd recommend, with some hesitation, Robin Williams' Come Inside My Mind, which is a is a uh, documentary that's debuting on HBO. It will be on HBO by the time you hear this, I think. Directed by Marina Zinovich, uh, who also directed Roman Polanski, Wanted and Desired. It's another uh, flawed film. But it, it's, it, it's not as uh, as revealing in many ways. It kind of glosses over some of the thornier aspects of his life. But it's so filled with, like, great behind the scenes clips and, and good interviews with like Pam Dauber who's who's a you know really moving interviews about her relationship with Robin Williams over the years and all these like sort of outtakes and and just the you know cuts and and you know, sort of profane bloopers from from Mork and Mindy and, and there's one stretch of improvising different lines from Mrs. Doubtfire that's Actually, funnier than anything in Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, so yeah, they're they're good. They're good paired together. If you if you have one Robin Williams experience, I would definitely recommend the Itzkoff book over uh, the documentary. But they're both very much worth your time. Yeah, I saw Come Inside My Mind at Sundance and reviewed it out of there, and I said pretty much what you just said. It's very conventional mm-hmm. in some ways, but you just cannot beat those clips. I mean, it was just such an overview. There's so many different kind of periods of his career and you can actually see him like live over the course of a fairly brief period of time, developing more and more of his voice and yet keeping that voice sort of consistent, you know, over the course of decades. And it's fascinating. And there's just, there's a sequence in there where he's doing this, uh, you know, comic bit, f- bit failed, mayday, mayday, and mm-hmm. like running around the stage pretending that his uh, comedian brain is like going down like a plane on fire in, in panic because a joke didn't work that just kind of feels like it sums up who Robin Williams was, that kind of mania combined with a, a constant concern that if he wasn't on enough, that if people weren't laughing at him, that he wasn't doing his job. It's so emotionally connecting in so many ways. Like even when the, the narrative seems a little canned, you can't can him. He's uncannable. He's uncanny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in some ways, the, one of the stronger aspects of the film is that he kind of serves as the narrator, and because he did so many interviews over the years, and that he serves as voiceover for a lot of it, and that that works really well. But that sense of neediness and the need to perform, and you know, you know, looking for affection and, and satisfaction from audiences, from women, from stardom. Uh, that's really well drawn out in the, in the Itzkoff book. And, it, and it, you can see it as a, as a primary uh, motivation. And it's like just someone who at the end of his life wasn't grading, getting great career opportunities, but instead of just saying, stepping back and maybe waiting for the world to catch up and want to see him in a big movie again, just kept working and working and working because it's the only thing he really knew how to do. Yeah, I, I'm uh, interested in checking out both of those things. Uh, the Itzkoff book. The Itzkoff book is called Robin. The Robin, yes. And he also wrote a book about the movie Network mm-hmm. and uh, is very, also extremely funny on Twitter if you don't follow him there. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, so worth checking out all of this stuff. Yeah, the book is called Robin by Dave Itzkoff and it's uh, recently published and, and uh, the documentary is called Robin Williams Come Inside My Mind and it should be on HBO soon if not already. Thank you. 
that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out July 24th and July 31st. Keith, what are we discussing? Our next few episodes will look at two satires of capitalism separated by decades, but united by their dark humor. First, we'll cover Putney Swope, Robert Downey Sr.'s 1969 satire starring Arnold Johnson as a black employee who enacts radical changes at an advertising firm. Then we'll discuss Sorry to Bother You, the directorial debut of Boots Riley, best known as a frontman of the political hip-hop group The Coup. It stars Lakeith Stanfield as a down-on-his-luck Oaklander who ascends through the ranks of a telemarketing firm. Several who have seen Sorry to Bother You, including some Next Picture Show listeners, notice its similarities to Downey's film. But any similarities are accidental, since Riley, speaking to film comments, said of Putney Swope, I've never seen Putney Swope, but I keep being told that I should. Nonetheless, I think we'll find some connections. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Don't Look Now, Hereditary, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps. Oh, well, as as before, I'm all over the place. You can find me at Vulture. You can find me on The Verge. You can find me on Slate. You can find me at Rolling Stone. I collect my clips at KeithPhipps.com. You can find me on Twitter at KPhipps3000. That's it. Those are the only places you can find me. <laughs> Tasha? You can find me at TheVerge.com, where I am the film and TV editor. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me at uh, Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can also find my work in the New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Vulture, and other uh, such outlets. And uh, Genevieve Kosky, behind the boards, you can find her at Vox.com, where she is the deputy culture editor. And she's at Twitter at, at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast, and thanks to Genevieve Kosky for providing recording space at her home base, Jerry Kosky's apartment. <laughs> the next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Penoply Network. Please tune in next time.